Welcome to Off the Record. I'm your host, Marika Day, dietitian, nutritionist, recovering perfectionist, and founder of Fueled by Marika Day. Join me here each week as we delve into what it really means to be a healthy and happy human. You'll hear from conversations with experts in their fields to raw and real chats about aspects of health and life that we really don't hear enough about. You'll be left feeling inspired, educated, and empowered to be the best version of you. So sit back, relax, or head on out for your walk, and let's dive on in. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Off The Record. I am super excited this week because I am recording this podcast in, I feel like, almost real time. It is Monday morning, and obviously the podcast goes live on Wednesday morning. And I just really enjoy recording the podcast so close to it going live because obviously, you know, we need to be organized and have things planned in advance. Um, But sometimes things just don't go to plan. And obviously we have to throw in an extra episode or shuffle things around. And I really like it because it feels like that I am talking a little bit more live with you guys and can talk obviously about things that are going on right here and now. So I'm going to start this episode with a few little updates um, and then we're going to get into the nitty gritty of it. So first update is just because I get asked so often on socials about my hip surgery. It went really well. It was a bigger operation than expected. So they found that there was quite a few tears in there. So not just the labral tear, there was a tear to the ligament teres, I believe it's called. Um, and yeah, they just did a fair bit of work in there. So it's predicted to be a slightly longer rehab and recovery than what I expected. Um, but I should be back to like full training, full everything by around the six month mark, which is obviously a very long time away, but, um, I'm excited to be able to get back to running hopefully one day. And even if it is just small bouts of running, I am so stoked. The next thing is I want to talk about this because I posted this on Instagram last night and I've realized it's actually an issue and I've tried to find some more information out about it, but I can't. It's not an issue as far as Google's aware, but the gluten-free bread shortage, this is something that I didn't realize was, I thought it was just my local Coles just had run out of gluten-free bread, but It's been going on now for probably two to three weeks and I posted something about it on Instagram and yeah, a number of people, obviously I have a relatively large celiac following being a celiac and apparently it's like across Australia where there's just lack of gluten-free bread for some unknown reason. So I Googled it to try and find out if there was a reason behind this but cannot find any answers. So there you go. My request though at this time is that if you are choosing to eat gluten-free bread just because, I don't know, you think it's healthier or whatever, please don't right now because there's not enough to go around for those that need it. So if you can switch to normal bread because you're not celiac and gluten doesn't make you feel awful, then please do that so that you can leave some gluten-free bread for those of us who sadly cannot have that option. And final thing before we get into it is I did a poll on Instagram. I know I'm talking about Instagram a bit this morning, but I did a poll on Instagram and said, do you prefer cold like fridge avocado on toast or room temperature avocado and toast? And the results have been surprisingly like mixed. So it's 45% cold, 55% room temperature. 
And again, I just want to say, if you've never tried fridge or cold avocado on toast, you've got to try it. It's something about the contrast of the cold avocado with the hot toast, obviously with a bit of salt and a drizzle of extra virgin olive oil, even better. Um, But yeah, give it a go. Alrighty, so this week's episode is going to be all about gut health. Um, And in particular, we are going to be talking about when you have a symptomatic gut. So when you're experiencing things like bloating, diarrhea, constipation, cramping, you know, all of those uncomfortable symptoms that we might experience in our gut. Now, the reason why I want to specify that that is what we are talking about as gut health is that there are kind of two ways that we can look at gut health. So one way is through the symptoms that we find present within the gut. And then the other way is through our gut microbiota. So that is all of the bacteria and everything like that, that are housed in our um, mostly large bowel. And the two are not necessarily the same. So for example, you could have a really healthy gut microbiota, but still be experiencing like awful IBS or, you know, awful symptoms that, you know, you don't know what is causing it. Or the opposite could be true is you could have a really poor gut microbiota, which mind you, we actually don't have tests that accurately describe what is necessarily like a healthy gut microbiota and what is an unhealthy Um, There's not really like one gold standard that we're working towards, like, you know, having this number of this bacteria and this number of that one. It really is when it comes to gut bacteria about having a really diverse microbiota. So having lots of different types of bacteria in there, just like any ecosystem. And I use this analogy when we talk about ecosystems, if we think about like the Amazon rainforest and we think about the Great Barrier Reef. They are two very different ecosystems and the things that keep those ecosystems resilient or before resilient before humans came along and caused issues are the fact that they are so diverse. So there's so many different types of species living within the Great Barrier Reef and living within the Amazon that that is what gives those two ecosystems resilience. Now, obviously, humans have come along and caused a whole host of other issues to both of those ecosystems. But the point is that on like from the outside, when we look at those two ecosystems, they are so different, yet they can both be really healthy. And that's kind of the same with our gut microbiota is that we can have a really different gut microbiota to somebody else, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's less healthy. So what we look at more when it comes to the gut microbiota is having a diverse range of different types of species in there. So anyway, that's pretty much all we'll talk about specifically around the gut microbiota, because I really want to focus on a symptomatic gut today, because I think that's the thing that more people are obviously aware of because it's easier to know, you know, you feel the symptoms. Um, And it's also the thing that, again, we find more debilitating. So when someone has a symptomatic gut, one of the first things that we obviously do is wonder why this has happened. And there are obviously a number of reasons why you might get a symptomatic gut. And those things range from things like food poisoning or from things like irritable bowel syndrome, as well as chronic conditions and diseases like celiac disease or Crohn's disease. And then on the sort of higher end of the extreme is things like bowel cancers. 
Um, and even ovarian cancer can be um, often confused with symptoms of, um, you know, abdominal bloating and everything like that. And so some people can think that they've got irritable bowel syndrome, but it turns out to obviously be something a lot more severe. Now, that's not to say that you should be doomsdaying and preparing for a cancer diagnosis. These are things that I guess as a health practitioner, we need to consider the spectrum of the um of the severity of the diagnoses that could come as a result of ongoing symptoms within your gut. And I really want to emphasize the word ongoing because if this is, you know, like a one-time thing, then it very well could be food poisoning or a gut bug that you've just picked up from your children or, you know, from the gym. And that's not necessarily a cause for ongoing concern because that's likely something that your immune system will naturally sort of build you back from and you won't have to intervene too much to do anything. And you likely might not even need to go to the doctor, um, obviously, unless you're quite dehydrated and need, you know, fluids or anything like that to go to the emergency room. So there are a lot of reasons why we might experience these ongoing gut issues and what I want to touch on to begin with is, so what do we do about it when we feel we are experiencing ongoing gut issues and who do we go to first? Because this is, I think, where we can either like get on a really good path or we can get on a not so good path that actually ends up in this long winded journey that is more confusing and more overwhelming than it necessarily needs to be. I think part of the reason why these journeys do become so challenging sometimes is obviously like the chronic and ongoing nature of gut issues, but also capitalism. Like there are so many companies out there trying to capitalize on you feeling bad in your body and trying to make money from selling you things that maybe are only, you know, as good as placebo, if even that. So I think that, you know, there is a lot of companies out there that are profiting from our discomfort and our, I guess, desperate attempts to feel better. And, you know, we're so quick to cling on to things that, you know, if someone says this works then we'll jump at it because we don't want to feel like shit in our body. We want to be able to feel comfortable. We want to be able to go to the toilet each day and to be able to predict what our bowels are going to be like at least somewhat of the time. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of companies do capitalize on that and really unfairly so because it's capitalizing on people who are actually suffering and there are likely much more, um, appropriate interventions that are going to provide benefit. Yes. One of the things I always say is the benefit that you get with appropriate interventions does come with a bit of effort that you have to put in. And we'll get to that later in the podcast, but it's going to be longer lasting effects that you're going to get. And it's going to be more, um, more meaningful benefits that you get than something like just placebo from taking a supplement. Where do we go to first then if we are experiencing changes in the way our bowels work or in our symptoms? So if we're you know finding that we're really chronically bloated and uncomfortable all of the time, I think there's two places that you can start, but essentially, eventually you're going to need to go to your GP. And this is where, again, it's a hard thing to do. But if you have and if you can find a good GP who 
is willing to work with you and listen to you and take the time to um, hear you, then that is obviously amazing. Um, it's obviously very hard to come by because GPs are very like strapped for time and are very stressed and very overwhelmed. So if you've got a great GP, that is an amazing starting point. If you don't have a great GP, then what I would actually suggest is potentially starting with a dietitian who does work with irritable bowel syndrome or does work with sort of gut um, gastrointestinal conditions. And the reason why if I would suggest going to a dietitian first over a GP if you don't have a good GP is firstly because the dietitian might be able to direct you to a good GP. They might have recommendations of somebody that, um, you know, that they've had previous clients go to, or they are able to write a letter to your GP, which can then state, you know, so-and-so is experiencing this, this, and this. I think it might be that it would be worthwhile getting these tests done. So essentially you can have like somebody advocating for you when you do then go to your GP who may not be, you know, the best GP in the world. Now, the exception to this is if you are experiencing any of what we would call like red flag symptoms. So this is where you're experiencing blood in your stool. So if you're going to the toilet and you're finding that there is either fresh blood or dried blood when you are wiping after going to the bathroom, um, if you are losing weight without trying, so you are like weight is just falling off you or has gradually been coming off you without you putting in any effort over the last couple of weeks or months. If you are also experiencing any fevers, then again, it's a really good idea to get into your doctor as soon as you can. And the other thing to be aware of is if, if you are also experiencing anemia or if you have a family history of um, bowel cancer or a family history of ovarian cancer, then it might be worthwhile getting into um, your doctor as opposed to going to a, well, it's definitely worthwhile getting into your doctor as opposed to going to a dietitian first, because you can always come back to that dietitian um, or come back to going to a dietitian once you've ruled out some of the more, I guess, um, serious symptoms that we want to like it really prompts the doctor to then look further into it and maybe consider you know getting a gastroscopy and a colonoscopy so that we can get further examination into what might be going on the other red flag i just realized that i've missed there is if you do experience um any of these changes and you're above the age of about 50 or 60. So if you've noticed, you know, you've had really good bowels your entire life and then uh, above the age of 50 and 60, you've had a really big change in your bowel habits. Again, a really good time to go into your GP and just start getting some checkups done as well. So what is your GP going to do when you go in? Your GP is likely going to, and hopefully, and if they don't, then I would encourage you to prompt for these things is going to test you for celiac disease because that is one of the more common causes of um, gastrointestinal symptoms that often goes undiagnosed and is sort of associated with a whole range of different symptoms. And it's really good to get that testing done before you start making dietary changes because we really want to, um, or we need to capture that testing whilst you're consuming gluten. So when you've been having weeks of consuming gluten, so we don't want to sort of go down the path of making dietary changes and eliminating gluten or, you know, cutting out those sorts of things um, before we actually do that testing. So that's one thing that your GP most certainly should do. 
The other tests that they will do will largely depend on your symptoms and I guess your medical history and potentially your age as well. So as I said, they might, you know, send you off to a gastroenterologist and um, ask for colonoscopies and endoscopies to have a more thorough look, obviously, inside you. Um, Otherwise, depending on your symptoms, they might also do stool samples or, you know, they might check your bloods and look at, you know, is there iron deficiency? Is there B12 deficiency? What else is going on? That sort of helps to piece this picture together. What they will also likely do is refer you to a dietitian. Now, what I would suggest doing is looking up and checking whether that dietitian, so just Googling and having a look at their website. Most dietitians these days will have a website and just checking that they, you know, do um, work with irritable bowel syndrome and work with gastrointestinal conditions. I can never say that word. Um, Even though I worked in this space for so long, like five years, I was working in gastrointestinal nutrition and I still can't say the word. Anyway, they will refer you to a dietitian most likely. And again, in Australia, you likely will get um, put onto a Medicare, um, Medicare plan where you'll be able to get subsidized sessions, which may or may not be the best option for you, depending on whether you have private health insurance. You might find that your private health insurance is equally as good as well. Now, things not to do at the beginning of your journey with um, gut symptoms. Don't cut out gluten before you get tested for celiac disease. That's like number one. Um, Get tested for celiac disease. Absolutely. Number two is I wouldn't start taking lots of supplements that you see online without having spoken to a dietitian first and without having started to work through some of the things that we'll talk about shortly. Um, And the reason is, is that adding supplements can sometimes actually cause more issues. And a lot of the like gut health supplements that are available on the market contain a lot of like prebiotics and um, like inulin and dietary fibers, which for some people with irritable bowel syndrome is actually going to flare up your symptoms a lot more. Um, Yes, it's good. Like, and the way that they sort of get away with this is that, Those things do promote like a healthy gut microbiota, but they might be quite triggering in terms of symptoms for some people. And often, and like nine times out of 10, there is no research behind them as to whether they are actually um, providing a benefit that's higher than placebo. So a lot of these times, these supplements are sold to you as a placebo. So it's like a placebo being that if you believe that it's going to make a difference, that it will. And I'm also like, I'm here for placebo. Like if placebo, I always said that about my hip surgery. I was like, if my hip surgery only works because of a placebo and that I believe that it's working, then that's an expensive placebo, but it's one I'm willing to take. So it's okay to do supplements and to take supplements, but I would wait until you've tried um, some dietary changes and some lifestyle changes first before you start throwing supplements at it because the cost can add up quite significantly. And this is where I don't really agree with some naturopaths in the way that they approach this is that I find a lot of naturopaths do go about this like really strict elimination process alongside like a whole bunch of supplements that can cost upwards of like hundreds of dollars each month. And one of the things that we do know about um, irritable bowel syndrome in particular, so I'm actually going to start shifting towards more irritable bowel syndrome um, chat now. And the reason is that 
those tests that you would have got from your GP, so be it, or, you know, your um, gastro, here we go again, I can't even say it, your gastroenterologist, um, they will have either conclusively diagnosed another condition or not. So they would have either diagnosed um, celiac disease or they would have diagnosed uh, inflammatory bowel disease or any other sort of more serious concerns there. And what then happens typically is that irritable bowel syndrome is a diagnosis of elimination. So once you've sort of um, excluded more serious concerns, if you fit certain criteria, then often it falls into uh, a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. So what I was saying is that one of the things with irritable bowel syndrome is that, and actually many of our functional gut conditions is that our stress and our mental well-being and our um, emotional state actually does have a really, really big impact on the symptoms that we find that are occurring. And so what can happen is that, you know, if you go to somebody and that you feel really overwhelmed by the information that they've told you, or you feel like really restricted from the diet that they've given you, or you feel really under pressure because they've prescribed you $600 worth of supplements a month and you can't afford that, but you feel like that you need to for your health, then that actually adds to the amount of stress and pressure and load that you are carrying with you and actually can cause worse symptoms. Now, this whole like mental health and emotional states and your gut is for a lot of people, I think they still believe that it's a bit woo woo. It's like, oh, how I feel like impacts my gut. It's not woo woo. It is like pure science. Our gut and our brain are so closely interacted through our nervous system and the way that we feel. So whether we are in our, um, like our fight or flight state, or we are in our rest and digest state, then we are changing the way that our gut is working. So when we are like amped up and when we're stressed and when we are overwhelmed, and that might not necessarily be through, like it might not be through significant stresses. Like obviously, you know, we all have big stresses in our lives. You know, we all are dealing with inflation. We are all dealing with pandemics and, you know, these stressful things that are going on around the world that makes us question out, like we're all going through existential crises, crises at the moment. And on top of that, though, we all have little things that add up each day. So whether it be you know, the kids are just screaming and you just can't settle them down or it's uni assignments due or deadlines at work. All of these little things add up to like this allostatic load that is having an impact on our nervous system. And when we are in this state of like fight or flight and in this like stress state, then our digestive system is actually not functioning at its optimal level. So our digestive juices are sort of downregulated. We're getting less digestive juices produced. We're getting less movement through our bowels. So our, our whole gut will actually slow down. And these things have a really significant impact then on whether you're experiencing bloating or whether you're experiencing diarrhea or constipation. So one of the things I, you know, when I was working one-on-one with clients and I did, as I said, I did this for many, many years. And one of the reasons why I've actually sort of moved away from working in this gut health space is because of the, the such strong link with mental well-being, stress, anxiety. 
I almost felt that I was not equipped to be, um, it sounds really weird to say, like not equipped to be working with people who are experiencing this because there was such a strong mental, like mental health influence there that I was like, this needs to be the work of like a psychologist or a therapist rather than a dietitian because so many times like food wasn't the answer. And I think that's actually a really empowering thing. A lot of people I think turn to food as a way to like try and, you know, oh, if I just cut out this, it'll make me feel better. And don't get me wrong, like the low FODMAP diet is a really effective diet for um, irritable bowel syndrome. It is only intended for short term. So you should not definitely not be on a strict low FODMAP diet more than four weeks. And if you are, then I definitely suggest going to see a dietitian or starting to reintroduce some of those foods and working on um, stress management and mental well-being practices like gratitude, meditation, journaling, yoga, those sorts of things. Um, Because you'll be so surprised at the impact that they have on your ability to tolerate certain foods. And I'm going to give you this example of somebody who came to me many, many years ago now, but she came to me after, I think it was seven years um, of like chronic bloating. And she'd been to that many like dietitians, doctors, gastroenterologists, I said the word right, and um, could not find anything. And she was like, I've just got this chronic, chronic IBS. And I was like, oh God, what am I going to do? Like how am I going to have some strategy that none of these other people have had before? Um, Like I'm not a magician. And I was like, okay, um, we're going to try a different approach. What I want you to do is to go away and I want you for the next four weeks to focus purely on slowing down around your mealtimes. So like taking some mindful moments and breaths and everything whilst you're preparing your meal and just like being more present at your mealtime. So instead of rushing into your lunch and rushing into, you know, getting everyone ready for dinner and all of these sorts of things. And then when you're eating, eating slowly, chewing your food really, really well, putting the knife and fork down between mouthfuls, taking your time and really sort of slowing those moments of just the moments of eating. Like I didn't even say to her, you know, Stop being stressed in your every other day life because that's that's really hard to do. Um, and she came back to me in a month and I was like, I remember seeing her name on my list and I was like, all right, like we're going to have to, you know, try low FODMAP again and see what it is. And I was like, all right, let's do this. Bracing myself for her to come in. She comes in and she's like, Marika, you wouldn't believe it. And I was like, oh God, what? And um, she's like, I have not, like, I've not felt this good in seven years. She's like, I've been to, like, you know, I've spent so much money on like tests and supplements and like all of these things. And all I needed to do was to slow down and to, you know, chew my food better and to be more present whilst I'm eating. Now, like if we added on some like yoga or meditation or mindful practices, again, being mindful that not everyone, yoga and meditation isn't for everyone, but like It might be surfing for you or it might be swimming for you. Whatever those sort of moments are where you can be really mindful and really present. These are the things that are going to have a really big impact on your overall like stress levels and your allostatic load and actually help you then in the long run with your digestion. So that story, like that's one story, obviously, and that's one experience. But these things have been occurring so much in my practice that I was like, 
oh my gosh, there is such a strong connection between the way people are feeling and their symptoms that I felt like the low FODMAP diet. And again, there's research to back this up. So there's actually a study that um, was done in Australia, which showed that yoga therapy. So doing yoga, I think it was three times a week was equally as effective in um, reducing symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome as was um, the low FODMAP diet. So like, let's think about that. Low FODMAP diet is quite a restrictive elimination diet, which you follow for at least four weeks. And then you obviously spend the next sort of eight weeks working out what are the, um, like, what are the specific triggers for you? Or you do yoga three times a week and potentially, you know, get equal benefit, but you haven't cut out anything of your diet. Like how incredible is that? And that's something that, again, like what, like I said, it's, it's something that really made me think twice about the practice and, you know, what is helping people and how can we provide the most benefit to people with the least restriction? And I guess that's my philosophy and my way of working is that I want people to be able to have the most pleasure in their life and the most enjoyment and the least restriction so that they can really enjoy their life um, as freely as possible. So what I'm saying here is after that massive rant is don't underestimate the power of um, addressing, you know, your emotions and addressing potentially going to a therapist and speaking about, you know, if there's past traumatic events that you've not worked through, or even if it's just day-to-day life stress, if you haven't got really good coping mechanisms, if you haven't got outlets for that, then these are things that are actually going to have a significant impact on um, symptoms of like on gut symptoms, particularly if it is irritable bowel syndrome or a functional gut disorder. If it's something like celiac disease, it's probably not going to have the biggest impact, but it still will have some impact. So my suggestion is somebody who is like new to gut symptoms and trying to work out what to do is to focus on those things first. So once you've gone to your GP and once you've um, sort of worked out that there's nothing more sinister going on or there's no diagnoses that need to be made, uh, is to then start to think about how can we bring more mindful moments into the day? How can we slow down our eating? How can we chew our food better? And do that for a couple of weeks to see what benefit that has and try and be really consistent with that. And then if you get no benefits from that, that's when I would suggest then going into um working out, you know, whether there are specific food triggers, because absolutely, like there are a lot of people, particularly garlic and onion, I feel like are sort of two of the main triggers for um, issues with people in terms of uh, IBS and symptoms that they're experiencing. So there is absolutely a time and a place for like elimination diets and the low FODMAP diet. I do suggest working with a um, dietitian on that, because as I said, you want to make sure that you're doing it like as effectively as possible. Like you're getting in and out. Like you don't want to be stuck on it for longer than you need to be. You don't want to be restricting for longer than you need to be. And there's potentially, um, you know, situations where it wouldn't be recommended. So like, for example, you know, you might, if you're pregnant, you might need to do like a modified version, or if you've got an eating disorder, there's obviously going to be other um, considerations to put in place um, during this. Now, finally, I wanted to touch on something that I haven't touched on in this conversation, but I actually have a whole nother podcast on is endometriosis. There is a huge overlap in symptoms of endometriosis and irritable bowel syndrome. 
And this is something that your GP may consider, may not consider. It sort of depends on your host of symptoms that occur. Um, I would suggest going and listening to my endometriosis uh, podcast if you want to learn more about that. Anyway, so that's how I would begin a journey with um, gut symptoms. Uh, Again, things that I wouldn't do, like I said, is supplements. Um, Lots of uh, testing is bullshit testing. So things like hair testing, hair analysis, those um, uh, IG, is it IgG they do? IgA? Uh, the, the finger prick blood testing. I can't even remember off the top of my head now. The finger prick blood testing where they tell you your food intolerances, complete bullshit and cost you $500 to get a list of absolutely nothing that means nothing. Don't do that. Um, don't do the microbiota like testing to kits as well. They don't actually like, as I said in the beginning of the episode is that they can show you what types of bacteria are in your stool, but we don't actually know what a healthy gut microbiota specifically looks like. And the other thing is that this is stool testing. And so it's looking at the bacteria in your poo. It's not looking at the bacteria that's within your gut. And they could be actually two different things. So what is coming out of you might be different to what's still housed within you. So that's um, something yet to just to keep in mind not to do. Before we wrap up, I want to touch on two things that I see come up on socials a lot. Um, Firstly is candida and the candida like cleanse or elimination diet. Now, candida is like a type of yeast. So it's the same yeast that actually causes thrush. So whether it be like oral thrush or vaginal thrush and candida is present in most people's um, bowels. Like that's normal. We do have uh, an amount of candida in our bowels. Um, Some people obviously can get an overgrowth of that. However, how it's diagnosed is I think for a lot of people, like it's just given this blanket diagnosis without any real testing as to what's gone on. And again, I find that it is naturopaths in particular that do blanket diagnose this without, you know, accurate testing. Um, the thing here is though, that there is no diet like that has been proven with research to show that it can eliminate. And again, we're not necessarily looking at eliminating. We kind of want to just, um, you know, settle down the overgrowth, um, of candida. So like there's some really strict elimination diets, like cutting out all sugar and all carbs and all like literally all food in order to control this. And there's no evidence to support it. And if we think back to what I've just said around like the impact of your mental wellbeing and your total like stress load on your gut health, is that it potentially can do more harm than good by having these really stressful restrictive diets as well. So um, unless your gastroenterologist has told you um, that you have, you know, an overgrowth of some particular bacteria or anything, then I wouldn't be going on these restrictive elimination diets. Um, And then the other one is SIBO. So small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, similar sort of thing where there is an overgrowth of bacteria in our small bowel. Um, Typically, obviously our uh, large bowel is where a lot of our bacteria is held. And one of the reasons why this occurs is if there is like a motility issue. So um, for example, if you've got something like gastroparesis, where you've got really slow motility, which means that some of the bacteria can essentially like 
backtrack from the large bowel up into the small bowel and that can cause symptoms for some people now how do you diagnose that it's really hard like there's no real gold standard for diagnosis of that um some people say you know the breath tests and everything but they're not all that accurate what do we do about it though one of the gold standard way to manage you know true small intestinal um, bacterial overgrowth is antibiotics that is what you need to do if you do have a serious issue with that um the low FODMAP diet there has been sort of mixed sort of stuff as to whether that helps control it a little bit. And again, typically if you're on this journey of, um, you know, ongoing gut issues at some point, you probably will try a low FODMAP diet for a couple of weeks and see what benefit it has. Um, but I, I still stand by, I think some of the first things that you should do is obviously go to your GP and get those like red flags sort of ruled out, anything that could be more sinister or more serious and need really targeted approaches to um, treatment. And then work on firstly, like your mealtime routines, your lifestyle, your stress levels, all of those sorts of things. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then working on, you know, are there certain foods that might be causing symptoms? And that is, like I said, best to do with a dietitian who specializes in um, gastrointestinal nutrition, irritable bowel syndrome. So they are my top tips for um, beginning your journey in a um, gut health perspective or a a symptomatic gut perspective. Um, Also want to say before I finish up is that it's so overwhelming and so frustrating. Like I've been there. I've obviously got celiac disease, but also I have had, you know, in my really stressful times of my life have had like chronic constipation and bloating and everything that you literally like you, you get so desperate. You, you're willing to do everything. Like I've bought all of the supplements I've done, you know, I've done these things and I just want to say like, you're not alone on that journey and I know it's so frustrating and you feel like you're not even in control of your own body. Yeah, and my biggest tips would be just be informed about what you can do with um, like with interventions, um, but not to be manipulated into buying lots of expensive tests or treatments or supplements and those sorts of things. And then also just lean into that process of um, letting go and it's, I feel really like, I feel really shit saying this because I've been in that situation. It's like, how do I let go when my bowels haven't worked in three days, but trusting the process and knowing that like the, the relaxation and those sorts of things are ultimately going to have a benefit. Um, even if not on your bowels, they're going to have a benefit on your mental well-being. Um, but yes, seeking professional help where possible from an accredited practicing dietitian, absolutely, who specializes in gastrointestinal nutrition. And if you've got a good GP, oh my God, they are worth their weight in gold. So definitely recommend finding one of those. Anyway, thank you for sticking around for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, as always, love to see you share on socials. It means the world to me. It's sort of the way that I really feel that you guys can support me in this podcast. You know, we don't do any paid advertising or anything, any sponsored segments on um, this podcast. It is literally all for you guys. So um, thank you. It really means the world to me that you tune in each week. And yeah, if you could share, if you enjoyed it, if you learned something from it, then that would be amazing. Um, Don't forget to tag me and have a wonderful rest of your week. Good weekend. And I'll catch you next week.